I was thinking about something, and um, you may not know this in particular, but one of my favorite little hobbies, one of the things that I genuinely uh, get joy in doing is giving little tours of the city. Whenever I have friends that come from out of town, uh, people that are visiting Chicago, uh, I love to give tours. I love to just drive around and be like, oh, this is this neighborhood, and here's a great restaurant, and these are some of those things. And one of the things that I love to talk about, one of my favorite aspects uh, is in Chicago trivia, has to do with the Great Chicago Fire. Have you guys heard about that, the Great Chicago Fire? If you're from the city, you grew up here, you probably heard about it. It's one of the stars represented on the Chicago flag. But in case you don't know, let me give you just a little bit of background on what happened. Uh, the city was built from the lake out. So, you know, it started as a port and it kind of built its way from the lake out. So from downtown towards us, we're actually part of the most furthest west. And when it was originally built, uh, it was mostly built out of wood. That was the material that was most available. You know, they knocked down trees, build up buildings, and slowly but surely the city was building out. And it was a pretty bustling city up until the point of the Great Chicago Fire. Now, there's debate on what really caused the fire. They always say the myth of O'Leary's cow, this family that had a cow who kicked over a lantern. Most people don't think that's true. Uh, but and what, it, what they do know is it was in the summertime, it was unseasonably hot, and it hadn't rained for a long time. And so there was a mixture of things that added up for a perfect disaster. So you have this wood that's been dried up for a long time, and any kind of spark was going to set off a massive blaze. And that's eventually what happened. A fire started, and it literally burned down all of downtown. The majority of the city was set on fire and completely burned down. And so if you've ever heard Chicago being referred to as the second city, the reason they call it the second city is not because we're second to anybody, but because we were literally built on the ashes of the first one. And when I say literally, I mean literally. There is a portion of the lake. When you're standing right on the shore of the lake, you are standing on the rubble of the old city. So there was so much debris and rubble that when they pushed it out, they actually extended the shoreline and then put grass and dirt on top of it. So a good amount of the lakeshore is the ashes of the first city. So we literally built on top of the burnt down ashes of the previous city. And there's a lot of cool stories that come out of the Great Chicago Fire. One of my favorite ones is after the fire, France, trying to be good neighbors, they sent us a ton of books to make up for the library that was lost during the Great Chicago Fire. You know, so they're like, oh, we're gonna send you all these books. We're so sorry that your library got burned down. And we're like, oh, that's great. What France didn't know is before the Great Chicago Fire, we did not have a public library. And so it was kind of like, oh yeah, the library burned down. So sad. Thank you guys for all these books. And that's literally how we got our first library. So there's a lot of cool little nuggets that came out of the Great Chicago Fire. But there was a symbol that was birthed out of the fire that became iconic that maybe you don't understand why it became such a powerful symbol. And I don't know if Jonathan was able to grab that picture for me, but this is what became the most iconic aspect after the fire. That is the Chicago Water Tower. <laughs> Literally a building that would pump water. Why it became so iconic is because it was one of the very few buildings who was able to survive the fire. So it was this symbolic thing. It was like this, hey, we can build again because we weren't totally burnt out. There is still some remnants left. There is still something that we can build upon. And they learned from that, right? They realized, hey, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't build a major city out of wood. That's probably not the best idea. And so they started to change the materials that they use. And they realized, hey, stone doesn't burn. And so they started to use stone and iron and steel and amazing things. Actually, the first skyscraper in the world was built after the Great Chicago Fire here in Chicago. It wasn't that big, but it was the biggest one yet. Our architecture went through the roof because architects from from all over the world came to be a part of that rebuilding of the city. That's why Chicago is known for its architecture. It's one of the greatest architectural planned cities in the world. I mean, there was some really incredible, powerful, long enduring aspects that make our city great that came out of crazy tragedy. Well, why am I bringing all that up? I think in the last year and a half or so since the pandemic, I really do believe that God has shaken the church, not just our youth group, but all over the world. 
And I think in that shaking, God burned away the things that weren't really enduring, the things that were not really strong, the things that weren't really set in. I think what's left is water towers, stone buildings that have endured and are gonna continue to endure and are reminders of what we need to build on. And so I've told the team for the last you know, several months, uh, it's not about who left, it's about who's left. These are the ones that we're building with. These are the ones that we're gonna grow with. And so those of you in this room and even some of you that are still watching faithfully online, you are the one that I'm considering the building blocks of what we're gonna be in the future. I believe that in this room, we're gonna lay down foundations and, and floors of what God is going to do years from now. Things that should the Lord not come within the next few years, your children might even benefit from. My prayer is that I can lay down the building blocks that one day my daughter will be able to stand in and worship and lead people with. Like this is the kind of the passion and thinking that I'm going with and that I need you to understand that you don't have to be a part of this, you get to be a part of this. That you don't come to excel because you're, you're coming to watch me. You show up because you're part of what we're doing. You are the church. And this is something that I think a lot of people in church misunderstand. They think the church is this building. This building can burn down and the church will still survive, right? We can have a, a horrible disaster happen like, like what's happened. You know, we can have a hurricane or a tornado. How random was that, right? The other day, a tornado in Chicago. I was looking at my wife. I'm like, yo, I'm getting slightly nervous. Should we go to the basement? Like, you know, I've never worried about it, but who knows, right? The way the world is, anything can happen one day. <clears throat> but my prayer is even if the building burns, even if the building falls or gets shaken or thrown away, the church can endure because the church is not a building. The church is made up of the people. Excel, whether we're in this room or in the other room or down the street or in some new building or whatever, it will always be Excel because it's made up of you. It's made up of the individuals, the students that are in this youth ministry. Excel is not me. I'm not a youth. I help direct, I help architect, I help lead, but you are the actual building. You are the blocks that make up what this youth ministry is and will continue to make up what it's going to be. So I wanna to talk to you about that, and if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to look at 1 Peter chapter two. And I wanna read verses four through 10 because I really do believe Peter gives us some powerful insight on this building that we're putting together. Listen to what the word of God says in verse four. It says, as you come to him, talking about Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he's saying, listen, they rejected Jesus, and we read about this in the gospel, right? Jesus came into this world. He was born in a manger. He, he raised up. He preached about the coming of the Lord. He talked about the fact that he's the savior of the world, that through his death, we can find life. But the world rejected him, particularly the Israelites, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They rejected him, and yet he was made to be the cornerstone. And I'll get into what that means in a second. And it talks about how Jesus, this living stone, and because of him, you are also living stones. You're building blocks. It goes on to say, for in scripture, it says, See, I lay down a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." This transformation, he's not saying that all people are living stones. He's saying that those who put their faith in Christ, those who believe in him, you are now becoming living stones. Living stones that are built on what the Bible describes as the cornerstone. If you're taking notes, that might be the first thing you want to write down, cornerstone. A cornerstone is the first block that's laid down in the foundation and building of any kind of uh, structure. 
The reason it's called the cornerstone is because it's literally put in the corner and the adjacent stones are attached to that. And so you gotta start somewhere, right? You don't just start by putting, you know, six stories on something. You gotta start somewhere. You start with that first stone and then you add a wall and you add a wall and you add the walls to that and you build on top of that. But it begins with one stone. It begins with the cornerstone. If you ever are on a building, particularly a building made out of stone, you might see in one of the corners a stone with a date on it. That's marking the cornerstone. It's a special mark that they put on buildings in order to identify what year it was built in. That's how special it was because the cornerstone was what bound the rest of that building together. It was the reason all those blocks were put there. You and I are held together by a cornerstone. We are all different in background. We're different in ethnicity and our history and where we live and what we come from and what we understand. But the thing that brings us all together is the cornerstone. It's why you can be from Israel, you can be from Africa, you can be from Brazil, you can be from China, you can be from any part of the world. And if you're a believer, we can be brothers and sisters because we are bound together by the one cornerstone. This is where all our differences are erased because our similarity is so powerful. So I don't care what culture you are, I don't care what skin color you are, I don't care what political aspects you look at, I don't care what your background was. If you got Jesus and you are a true believer, I have a powerful commonality with you. We're together. We're bound by this cornerstone. This is what I love about church. This is what I love about youth ministry is you get these kids from all different backgrounds. And let's be honest, because some of you did go to the same school. You can literally go to the same school as somebody in your youth group and never have a relationship with them. But the moment you get into church and you start to build a relationship that's centered around your relationship with Christ, they can quickly become one of your closest friends. Why? Because we have this common bond. There's a lot of relationships in this room that would have never existed outside of this room because we don't have that one commonality. And people always bond over commonalities. You might bond over your favorite sports team. You might bond over your favorite music artist. You might bond over your favorite genre of movies. We all find a commonality that we then feel like we're connected to somebody through. And those are all cool. But the greatest commonality that you and I have as believers is the cornerstone that we have in Jesus. So we can argue, we can have differences, we can be completely different in style and in everything else, but we have this thing in common. And because of that, I love you regardless of all the other things. That's why I don't believe you can be racist and a Christian. Because we're bound together by the cornerstone. Your skin doesn't matter to me anymore. We are bound together by the cornerstone. That's why God is not limited to America. It's not like, you know, the American God. That doesn't exist. God is the God of his kingdom, of his world. And so we are bound together beyond borders and beyond colors and beyond measures. And that is incredibly beautiful and powerful because it's what the world is trying to do, isn't it? The world keeps trying to unite and you hear people talk about like we need to come together and we need to get over this and we need to get over that. And the only way I can see that truly accomplishing is if we're all bound together in one powerful commonality that is Jesus Christ. Most of the time, the thing we wait to bring us together is a common enemy. Right, So if we have a common enemy, suddenly we all come together. If another country attacks America, all the Americans can rally together and get over their issue and say, no, 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 we hate that person. Let's go fight them. I'm saying, why do we need a common enemy when we have a common friend in Jesus? And so this is the thing that binds us. This is the thing that you have to allow to check your heart. When you do allow disagreement or animosity or, well, I don't like her because of how she looks. And I don't like him because girls are always talking to him. And in reality, I'm very insecure and jealous of him. But I'm going to act different. I'm going to just act like he's a jerk. But the reality is that it's in my own insecurities. You know what I'm talking about, guys, right? No, this is the truth. That regardless of our differences, that one commonality in Jesus is so powerful that it's what keeps us bound together. And if you don't have that binding in the building, if you don't have that cornerstone, the whole thing is going to fall apart. If we make our bond in this room anything other than Jesus, we'll never survive as a church or as a youth ministry. If we're bound together because of Pastor Joey, oh, I really like Pastor Joey, he's cool or whatever, or I like the way he speaks and he's funny or whatever. If that's the reason we come and we stay here, your relationship with God will fall apart the second you graduate because I will no longer be your youth pastor. 
If our commonality is bound because, well, I like playing basketball here, but the second we take the rim down and, and it rains or, or we get into winter, suddenly you don't show up. Why? Because you were only bound to this youth group, not through Jesus, but through the activities that we had. No, no, you got to be bound to this, not out of obligation, but out of your love for Christ, because we all come to the same place for the same reason. Not for the worship team, not for the atmosphere, not for the hangout, not for the ambiance. We all come in the same room because we believe Jesus is here. And we want to come together to worship Jesus, to get to know him better, to grow in our relationship. Listen, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 through 22 says this. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made a part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Okay, Paul, when he's talking to the church in Ephesus, he's making a point because before Jesus, the Jewish people and everybody else, which was considered Gentile, anyone who wasn't Jew was considered Gentile. There was no union. There was no commonality. They were always taught to be separated. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, listen, I'm here the savior of the world, not just this one group of people. And so now we are all bound together. No matter your difference, we all come together in Christ. And I love that. I love that the uh, anime nerd and the sports jock are friends. I love that the girl who's really into fashion and the girl who could care less are friends because we have the same bond in Jesus. And I love that, I, I mean, you, if you look at my index of friends, if you go through the list, I have such different and unique friendships. And every one of them is precious to me. And I can confidently have every one of them because in spite of any difference that there might be, the one thing that we have in common is our love for Jesus. And I think that's why in, in the church world, I can make friends so fast. I took Sal and Gio with me a couple weeks ago to a camp I was doing in Georgia. We made best friends in one week. Like we were just like, bro, we cried together. We're at the altar together. You're like my best friend now. Or like, for real. Why? Because that commonality is so powerful. But listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 through 11 says this. For we are both God's workers and you are God's field. You are God's building. Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have. And who is that? Christ Jesus. Be careful as you come into this group to lay your foundation on something that's not Jesus. I never want our foundation to be on a, on a great worship team. I want a great worship team, but that's not the foundation, right? It's like you always hear me say this in my relationship with, with my wife. All these beautiful things, they're the penthouse, they're that top floor, they're the things we show off, but they're not the foundation. Because if we one year have a phenomenal worship team and the next year everybody's learning how to play an instrument and it sounds like we're playing a bunch of wet cats, praise God, because it wasn't built on that. Because I can worship with somebody just beatboxing up there. It doesn't bother me. Like, I can still get into the presence of God because Jesus is my foundation. If all of a sudden I, I can't preach for a few weeks because, you know, I'm having an asthma attack or, God forbid, something crazy is happening, and, and one of you just has to pop up and give a 10-minute word, praise God, we can still go after because God's word's being preached. And the foundation is Christ. It's not the speaker. It's not the leader's. So if your leader leaves, if your leader has a moral failure and they mess up in their life and, and they walk away from God, you won't fall apart because your life wasn't built on that leader, it was built on Jesus. And we've all seen a lot of students who walk away from the Lord because the leader messed up and the leaders aren't perfect, beginning with me. None of us are perfect. That's why we say over and over again, don't build your life with us as the foundation. We're, we're gonna help, we're, we're part of the building blocks, but we are not the foundation. So even if some of the blocks fall, because your foundation is Christ, you can keep building. Be careful to make your foundation piece anything other than Christ in this room because that'll immediately set you up for failure. If your foundation was spring breakaway, well, guess what? We haven't had that in two years. So if that was your foundation, you're falling apart spiritually right now. My foundation is my relationship with Jesus. And if you feel like your foundation is weak, then you need to spend more time with Jesus, not with me. Be careful, because he 
is that foundation piece. We are just the building blocks. Okay, well, what do I mean by that? You might want to take notes on this. Number two, if God's the cornerstone, that means we're the building block. We grow spiritually and numerically as we build on this cornerstone. Okay, as we build on the cornerstone, we begin to grow the ministry. How do we grow this ministry? How do we make it? Because again, I, I, I think a lot of times people love ready-made products. So they want to walk into a room that's already packed out, that's already killing it, that everything sounds great. And it's like, yeah, this is the place to be. I've never been that way. I like to build things. I'm the kind of person that's like, yeah, that's cool, but I had nothing to do with that. I'm just enjoying what other people have built. I like to build things. I like to be a part of it. So when I first came to Excel many, many years ago, oh, probably now 21 years ago, when I first came as a student, I'll be honest with you, Excel was pretty crappy uh, by standards. The room was hideous. That thing was purple. The walls were, uh, no, that was yellow. The walls were purple. It was ugly. Um, the worship team was, was, was um, it was glorifying to the Lord. It was a sweet sound to his ear, but not anybody else's ear. Yo, low-key, one girl, her mic was never even on, ever. Like, they just let her sing, but they never turned her mic on because she sang bad. And, and she always cried. <laughs> so it's a, it could be the happiest song. She's on her knees crying. I'm like, that girl's real emotional. I mean, it wasn't great. We didn't have really cool projectors. We had, like, this sliding thing. Like, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever been in school where they had that. But we had a little projector. Like, there was a ministry for the projector where a person would put the slide in. The songs were whack. I mean, I'm sorry. It just, it wasn't great by any standard. But the presence of God was in the room. And when I walked in there and I met Jesus in that way, I said, this is where I want to be. And because this is where I felt the presence of God, Jesus in the cornerstone, I felt like I needed to bring all my friends to build on top of this. Part of why I felt that way is because the people that were here at the time, they didn't really like me anyway. Uh, there was a couple of people that grew up in the church. And by the way, if you grew up in the church, be very careful about this spirit because a lot of times you can get comfortable with the idea of us four no more. We don't need new people. We don't like new people. We're just going to do our thing. And that's kind of the attitude they had. There was a group of kids who, and a group of leaders who were like, yeah, you look like a thug. We don't want you here. Don't, you know, corrupt our kids. And I was like, well, guess what? I like it here. <laughs> so whether you want me here or not, I'm going to be here now. And if you don't want to be my friend, I'll bring my own friends. <laughs> and I started to bring more friends than they were here. And I remember literally filling up two to three rows of just my friends from church. Why? Because I was building on what God was building on me. It might have started a little spiteful. It, was, it might have been like, oh, you're going to be like that? Watch me. But the reality was I had met the cornerstone in a real powerful way. And I knew that there were other people that needed to have the same, uh, not reaction, but experience that I had in Christ. Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, going on to that verse, verse 12 through 15 says this. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. If we're going to build this ministry, you're going to be the material. And you have to decide what kind of material you're going to be. Are you going to be that precious stone? Are you going to be that powerful block, right? It describes it, gold, silver, jewels, precious materials, materials that are, are hardened, materials that can withstand, you know, and it's not just jewels, but it, it could be marble. It can be stone masonry. Like, it can be these powerful, precious materials that are good. And listen, we've seen that Cortez, your dad does a lot of construction work, and I know some of you boys have been out there working with him. There's a cheap way to build something, and there's a good way to build something. The cheap way will get it done, but it won't last, and in a few years, you're going to have to fix that anyway. And there's the, the good way that it might cost you a little bit more up front, but long term, it'll be better for the building of the home. Some of you guys have to decide, are you cheap material, or are you material that's worth building on? 
Because it says, in the judgment day, fire's gonna come and it's gonna prove what lasts and what doesn't last. The city of Chicago burned because wood didn't last. It hasn't burned since because the materials we use are now fireproof. Okay? There, there is a difference now because of the material that was used, not because of the location that it was built in. We can be in the same location forever, and the ministry can be 500 or it can be five. And the difference isn't where we're at and what we have to show. It's the material that we're using to build on it. Are you spiritually strong enough to support the weight of another individual being built on top of you? Is your walk with God strong enough that if someone else copied your relationship with God, they would be a better Christian for it? Or are you just a flake who quite honestly, when you graduate in a few years, you're not even gonna keep coming to church? Which I've seen for the last 12 years that I've done this. Because those weak materials, they don't last. Because they're superficial. That's the people who show up they're here, they listen, they don't do anything with what they listen to, they don't follow up with it, they don't live it out, they just listen, then they hang out and they have fun. And Excel is fun, but it's never transforming because they never take it into that process. So you get to decide what kind of material you're gonna be. You might start off as mud and straw, but if you bake that, you can make stone. You can create something powerful even out of weak materials if you allow God to do that process in you. But you gotta be willing to go through it too. So if you're not reading your Bible, you're always gonna be weak material, always. If you don't learn to talk to God on your own, you will forever be weak material. If you don't understand what God's voice sounds like because you don't spend the time with God, you will never be the kind of material that somebody can build on. If you don't have a heart for the lost and understand that it's your responsibility to go into your schools, to go into your communities, to go into your friends group and tell them about Jesus, you'll never see this youth ministry grow. I actually said this a couple times at camp and I probably said this to you guys. If you think this youth ministry sucks, I gotta tell you something. That just means you suck. Because it's not my youth ministry, it's yours. Youth ministry is only youth ministry when the youth are ministering. And so if God has called you to do that, some of you, you've already been like, God's called me to be a missionary. God's called me to preach. God's called me to lead worship. You know what? He might have called you to do all those things, but right now, he's assigned you to build this ministry. He's assigned you to be a part of the process here, to be a building material. Ask yourself this question. Who's the last person that you personally took under your wing and said, I'm gonna teach you how to go after God? I'm gonna teach you how to read your Bible. I'm gonna teach you what it means to love God. I'm gonna teach you what it means to worship. Hey, let me sit there and I'm gonna walk you through this. If the answer is never, then you're missing out on one of the key aspects of your role, which is to make disciples. That's not my job. It's part of my job. But in this room, that's your responsibility. Because guess what? Your friend's gonna listen to you way more than they'll listen to me. Because they only get 40 minutes with me. They get all day with you. I wanna build this youth ministry, but I need the right materials, and that responsibility's on you, it's not on me. I'm just part of the architect room. And so you gotta ask yourself, what does it take for me to go from straw and mud to a block, to something solid and concrete that can literally be built on top of? And I think what it really takes is your perception of who Jesus is. Because that, <laughs> will drive your initiative to become who Jesus called you to become. Matter of fact, if you notice in that scripture that we read, let me kind of go back to it in 1 Peter. It says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen, precious cornerstone. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious. Number three, we're talking about a precious stone. To those who believe, the stone is precious. Is God precious to you? Not just do you love God, but is he precious? Because the things that we deem as precious, we give special attention to. Some of you guys, you got shoes that are precious. You paid $250 for them, right? You, you, you were the lucky one in five billion who actually got in the sneakers app and won something. Like, these are precious. Right? You're that person, you know what I'm talking about, when you get those new shoes and you walk like this, trying to avoid the crease, you're just like, 
You, you keep the little shoe things that they come with, and every night you put the shoe things back in there to avoid the crease. You sit there, wipe them down every time you come home. Why? They're precious to you. So if all of a sudden we're playing an Excel game, we're like, hey, listen, we got a mud pit in the parking lot, and, and we're going to all jump in the mud pit. You're going to be like, hey, I love you guys, but no, nah, I ain't doing that. <laughs> Why? Because what you have is precious, and you're not willing to dirty it because it means something to you. That's what precious means. It means it has a high value to you. And the Bible is clear. To those who believe, God is precious. There is a high value about Jesus. And that high value has actions that come alongside the value that you put in it. Right? Just like I said, if you value that pair of shoes, you take care of those pairs of shoes. You clean those pairs of shoes. You put them away carefully. You pack them carefully. You walk in them carefully. You take special care. Why? Because they're precious to you. Well, is Jesus precious to you? Philippians chapter three, verse seven through nine says, I once thought these things were valuable. This is Paul talking about everything he had in the world. He says, man, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. He's saying, man, Christ ruined everything for me because I used to think it was awesome. I used to think these were great, but now that I've discovered Christ, Worthless. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything, counting it all as garbage so that I can gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Let me read that one sentence again. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I can gain Christ and become one with him. How precious is Christ? Think about it. You can have a pair of shoes for a long time, and you don't realize how crappy they are until you get that new pair. You can have your your favorite meal, and then you actually get a, a gourmet meal. Like you can eat your whole life at Olive Garden and then suddenly you eat at a real Italian restaurant and you're like, what was I eating? <laughs> Why? Because you've experienced something greater. Is Jesus precious enough to you that everything else becomes garbage in comparison to that? Those are the ones that really grow because your motivation is set right. You're not motivated to pursue God out of fear of going to hell. If your whole relationship with God is the fear of going to hell, you're never gonna grow in your relationship with God. I don't have a relationship with God because I don't wanna go to hell. I have a relationship with God because I wanna go to him. I wanna have a relationship with Jesus. To me, the worst aspect of hell is the absence of Christ. I want Jesus. And because I want Jesus, I gave up everything else in my life. I could have made a lot more money. I could have done a lot of other things. I could have pursued a lot of other ventures, but I discarded all that because the most precious thing to me was my relationship with Christ and the purpose that God has for me in my life. When that becomes a reality for you, and it's not, you got to understand, it's not decide that he's precious, so do these things. It's more of this is what's the revelation to you. What you value as precious is what you put into it. So let me say it more like this. It's not, is God precious to you? It's look at what you're doing, and based on what you're doing, is God precious to you? Because it's more of a revelation than it is really a confirmation. It's telling you, if you're not pursuing God, if you don't take time to read your Bible, to get to know the Lord, to pray, to have a relationship with God, if you're already not doing that, all it really is is an indicator that you don't value God the way he values you. He's just not that precious to you. And if he's not precious to you, not only will you not follow him, think so, but then he becomes a stumbling block to you. It's interesting, the same block can either be a building block or a stumbling block depending on where it is in your life. The same stone can be a stumbling block or a building block <laughs> depending on where it is in your life. Again, going back to our key verse in the beginning in 1 Peter, 
He says, the stone, uh, the, the, uh, let me get back to this. I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But then listen, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and it's a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fail. Well, what does that mean for us? To those who don't believe, God is a stumbling block. It's a frustration. Let's take it into your context. How do I know is God a precious stone or is God a stumbling block? If you view it like this, if you think, well, the only reason I'm not pursuing my relationship with God further is because if I do, then I can no longer do this. I can no longer talk like this or watch this or go to this or, or hang out with these people. And because you want to do that, but you know you can't do that and have Christ, Christ then becomes a stumbling block to what you want. Well, I, I love God, but I also want to be in a relationship with this person of the same sex, and I know God's not for that, but because this is what I want, Christ now becomes a stumbling block towards what I want. And so what do we end up doing? We remove Christ so that he's no longer a stumbling block. We get Christ out of the way so that we can pursue what we want. That can be that, it can be a habit, it can be even just good things, like this is what I want for my life, even though I know God wants this for my life, and so in order to pursue what I want, I'm gonna remove the stumbling block. And this is ultimately, and it's not even, I mean, it happens with heterosexual relationships all the time. I have seen student after student, again, this is why so often you're wondering like why the leaders are always asking about who you're dating, and, and we honestly don't care about who a 12-year-old is dating. It's, it's not like we're sitting at home going, oh my God, I wonder who she likes. Just, <laughs> we, honestly, we have better things to do. But the truth is, we understand that so often, because you really wanna be with that person, you're willing to remove Jesus if he becomes a stumbling block toward your desire. And many people have walked away from Christ not because of anything he did, but because pursuing him means they can no longer pursue the other thing that they want. That's why Paul said, hey, I have to count all of that as garbage. Because I don't want, if Christ doesn't want it for me, I don't want it for me. It's garbage in comparison to who I have in Christ. And every single one of you, everybody in this room, at some point in your life, you're going to come to a point where there's going to be something that's competing with your relationship with Christ. And you are going to have to decide, God, are you going to be my building block to get closer to you? Or are you going to become a stumbling block that makes me want to remove you so that I can have what I want? Everyone in this room will have that, and you might have that multiple times. And you have to make the decision, are you going to draw closer to God, or are you going to push him away because he got in between what you really want? And let me tell you something. You may really want it, but it may not be good for you. And I think about this oftentimes with my daughter. She's now an official toddler in a very stubborn age. There are tons of things that she wants that are just not good for her. It doesn't mean she doesn't want it, though. She wants the knife on the table. <laughs> and she'll kick and scream because she wants it. And I'm not going to be like, well, babe, she really wants the knife. <laughs> you know, like, let's just let her play with it for a little bit. I'll watch her. I'll make sure she doesn't stab anyone or herself. No, because I'm a good father. I'm looking at her going, listen, baby girl, I know you want that, but that's not good for you. I know you think it's good. Uh, and again, if I let my baby do everything she wanted to do, I wouldn't have her anymore because she'd hurt herself. She could possibly literally kill herself in certain instances. If I just let her play with Tylenol, it's like, here's a couple pills. I know you think it's cute and you play with it just because she wants it. I mean, literally, this girl, she's a kid. She wants her poop. She, she wants, I'm like, don't, you can't have that. You can't grab that. Am I going to be the kind of dad that's like, well, she really wants it. Just let her eat it once. <laughs> Right? The other day, my wife, she, she learned how to wash her hands, so she pushes her little stool to the sink, and she steps on her stool, and she washes her hands, and she just sits there, and she goes, wash, 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 and she just washes her hands, because she likes to do that. But one day, the stool wasn't there, but she wanted to wash her hands, so what does she do? She washed her hands in the water that was there, and it wasn't the sink. So she's there in the toilet, wash, 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 wash. Thank God, no, it was clean. <laughs> but listen, a good father and a good mother 
aren't going to give a child everything just because they want it. And she doesn't get it right now at her age and her understanding that what she wants is actually going to hurt her. And sometimes you get angry with God, or you get angry with your leaders, or you get angry with people because you're thinking, but I really, really want this. And you don't understand because God knows the end from the beginning. He goes, if I let you have that, you'd really hurt yourself. Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 through 25. <clears throat> Where is this wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand the signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. You might think you know what's best for you, but God definitely knows what's best for you. You might think you know what you want, but God definitely knows what you need. And so if you could start getting to the point where you don't look at God as a stumbling block, but you understand it's a building block to a life closer to him, a life that in all irony benefits you greater than anything else could ever benefit you, then your pursuit of God is not, oh, I gotta go to church, or oh, I gotta go to small groups, oh, I have to do this. It's no, no, I get to do this. And I get to do it, and I love it so much that I want other people to have the same opportunity to have that with me. Pastor Jason, if you can help me out. In the book of Matthew, chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, listen to what the Bible says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Talking about himself. Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Let me pause right there for a second. There's a lot of people in the world who have an opinion on who Jesus is. Some say he was just a good prophet who taught a lot of good things, which I, I, I love. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said this about Jesus. Jesus is either who he said he was or he's a raving lunatic. There's no in between. So I don't ever subscribe to the idea that, oh, he was just a good man who lived a good life and had some good teachings. No, because he said he was God. <laughs> so he's either who he said he was or he's insane. But there's a lot of people who have opinions on who Jesus is, on how Jesus should act. I, I always think it's funny, people who don't know God who are like, yeah, would Jesus do that? Or would Jesus would act like this? I'm, no, he wouldn't. Jesus would treat people this way. Mm, I, don't, I don't know if we're talking about the same Jesus. I think you're talking about perception of who you think Jesus is, but when you actually get to understand who he is, your perception changes. And so here they're saying, he asks his disciples, say, hey, listen, who do people say I am? And they named some really good people, John the Baptist, uh, the prophet Elijah, the prophet Jeremiah. They're like, hey, they think you're these representatives of God. But then Jesus turns it, and he says, okay, but who do you say I am? The world has a lot of opinions, but the only one that matters to you is your own when it comes to who Jesus is. Who do you say Jesus is? And then Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Let me again pause right there. Your understanding of God will not come from me. I may help clarify some things. I might help teach you and, and correct some things that maybe you're off with. But your true understanding and revelation of who Jesus Christ is and what that means and whether he's a precious stone or a stumbling block all comes from God. And God will reveal that to you. Now, you could choose to ignore that. But if you pursue God, he will reveal to you who Jesus really is in your life. And so Jesus says, you're blessed 
because you didn't learn that from a man. You will reveal that by God. Now I say to you that Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will never conquer it. Jesus is the cornerstone, and the foundation was built on the disciples that he established. After his death and resurrection, the Bible tells us that Jesus said to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And while they waited for the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God came upon them, that they flooded into the streets and Peter stood up and preached the first salvation message. And the Bible says that in that moment, through the power of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people received Jesus as Savior. And the church blew from 11 men and or 120 men and women, if I can be more precise, to 3,000 in one message. Could you imagine if one day I preach a message and we went from this size of the room to 3,000 kids? And some would think, well, that would never happen. Why? It happened once, it kind of happened again. But here's the deal. We would never keep the 3,000 if we don't have a strong enough foundation on the few that are in the room now to build on top of that. There's a reason why that didn't happen until three years after their training. Listen, we may not have that kind of explosion until years from now. I may not even get to be the pastor at that point. But it's not about me. When I was in the UK, I was uh, visiting this incredibly massive cathedral in a city called Lincoln. Lincoln actually used to be the capital of England before London was. And there's this ridiculously beautiful cathedral, massive in size, built like before America was even discovered by Europe. And I'm standing outside and I'm watching this marvelous building. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world did they build this? Without any heavy machinery, without bulldozers and cranes and lifts, how did they get those massive blocks up there with just horse, carriage, and men? And I remember as we were doing the tour, one of the ladies in there said <laughs> that the main architect, the main uh, engineer who took on the project of building those cathedrals, he did so with the full understanding that he would not be alive to finish building it that it would be his apprentice, a younger person, who would take on finishing that cathedral. And I remember the Lord speaking to me, are you willing to build something that you may not even be around to see it finished? Now, by the grace of God, I've been here 12 years. I'd love to be here another 12. You know, should the Lord tarry and, and you know, God allow me to do this, that's great. But I want to build this ministry to outlast me, to outlast you. And my question is, are you willing to put in the effort to start to build a foundation for something that might be, maybe your kids will get to enjoy one day? But it's because we were willing to be those foundational pieces that were attached to a cornerstone that understood how precious Jesus is and that he's not a stumbling block, but a building block to a life closer to Jesus. So I'm gonna ask you to stand as we close out. And I want you to just, again, close your eyes and, and hear my voice. I really want you to think about this. I'm asking you personally right now, as individuals, and really hear my heart when I say this. Will you help me build something here? Will you help me make this a place where teenagers can walk through the door and experience the presence of God in a way that they've never experienced before? Will you help me make this a place where the wounded will be healed, where the broken will be restored, where the lost will be found, where God's name will be glorified and his presence tangible? Will you help me build God's church? Because you just understand like I do how incredibly special and precious this relationship with Jesus really is. And you know that there are tons of people, people you know personally, who are dying and going to hell, 
who are apart from the Lord, and maybe if they were just given an opportunity, they'd say yes. I don't need you to raise your hands because this really isn't about me and it's not about, because you can say yes right now and then never do anything. I'm just asking, help me. Be committed. Come by every week. Get involved in small groups. Bring your friends. Preach the gospel. Talk about Jesus. Read your Bible. These are all incredibly practical, effective ways to help. Let's build this church. Let's build this ministry. Let's fill the room with young people who love God and want to pursue him too. But we need God's help for that. Holy Spirit, we're so grateful because we, we just sensed your presence in this room tonight. And we just ask, Lord, even in this moment when the world has been shaken and many have walked away and fallen away from you, God, I'm so grateful for the ones that are here, the ones that have been consistent, the ones that have been trying. Lord, I know we're not all perfect. I know we're not all where we want to be. But I thank you, God, that we're all at least beginning to move in that same direction. And God, I ask right now, by the power of your name, would you begin to raise up young people in this room, men and women who have a passion and a heart for you, a desire to know you, who value you as a precious stone and not a stumbling block, who are willing to consider everything else garbage in comparison with what they've discovered in you. God, I thank you for all the leaders in this room and all the years that they've put into it. But God, this ministry belongs to the teens. This ministry belongs to this generation in this room, Lord, that has access to their friend groups, that has access to their schools and their communities that you have placed in those areas for such a time as this. God, I pray for boldness in them, God. I pray that they would be unapologetic about their faith. I pray that they would be courageous and, and, and emboldened to do everything you called them to do. Lord, I pray that they would have enough courage and wisdom to understand that they don't even need to bring their friends in this room for them to get saved. They can have that conversation right where they're at. But Lord, we bring them in this room so they can build community and be attached to the holy temple that you're building. So Father, we ask, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you empower each and every one of us to lay down a beautiful foundation that you will continue to build your temple on that not even the gates of hell would be able to conquer. Lord, we pray for a lost generation that's broken, bruised. Lord, a generation that at high, high record rates are killing themselves, are turning to things that are hurting them, are walking away lost, broken, and bruised. And many of them simply because we are not willing to live a life that's worthy of following you. So Father, help us to be the living stones that you are and to be able to build the kingdom the way you've called us to do it. We leave this in your hands. We understand 100%, God, that the results are your department, but obedience is ours. So help us to be obedient. Help us to be faithful. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen.